Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Debbie, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I am a uh, retired medical writer and um, used to be a practicing artist in Philadelphia. Uh, when COVID hit, I just started doing investigative journalism because I realized nobody else was doing it. And I have been doing it for the last, uh, I guess, a uh, year, year very seriously at Brownstone Institute. I'm a fellow at the Brownstone Institute. And um, that's what I'm doing now. I'm actually writing a book. So uh, I'm excited. When you talked about medical writing, what did you typically write about? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I was um, So medical writing is a field where you write for uh, either pharmaceutical companies or hospitals or uh, nonprofits or government agencies. So I actually have worked for all of those various kinds of institutions and companies who are trying to convey medical information either to the public. So that would be translating a lot of uh, complicated uh, scientific and medical information into more comprehensible terms for lay people, or it is uh, communicating study results or information about pharmaceutical products to doctors or to other professionals. That's another kind of, there's more of a B2B and then there's a B2C, which is a business to consumer, different kinds of uh, conveying of medical and scientific information to various uh, populations. Now, so did you already know? You, did you already know the groundwork of how the medical industry worked, like the influences with like government and stuff like that? But like before even the pandemic or anything like that started. I mean, I I know about academic influence research because of this show, speaking with academics and then looking into the history of like tobacco history and their influence on everything. And I started realizing, like, did was there always this connection here? So were you aware of any? kind of ethical issues and things of that sort that went on with pharmaceutical corporations involvement and so like maybe a relaying public message? That's a good question. Not from my work though. I wasn't, I was aware of it as most people were from media and from big stories of various pharma corruption and stuff like that. But in my work, it never came up at all because I was a little tiny, tiny, I was a consultant. I wasn't even a, an employee. So I would be working for like an ad agency and then we would be working for a pharma company or something like that. And we would be working on one product on one campaign. And all I realized when I was doing that was that they were spending lots of money on advertising that I thought was absolutely absurd. And that the things that they did in terms of marketing uh, were just completely ridiculous. And the fact that we even have direct to consumer marketing of pharmaceutical products is a huge, huge problem. That's kind of what started all the corruption in the pharmaceutical industry in this country, which is much worse than in other countries because no other country has direct to consumer advertising of pharmaceutical products. That shouldn't even exist. Yeah, it is weird that we're one of two countries, I think, that are the only uh, countries that uh, advertise pharmaceutical drugs. It's us in New Zealand, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, New Zealand. Okay, I didn't even know about New Zealand. So other, like Europe, you know, uh, any other normal country, not normal, uh, <laughs> other um, more developed countries with, with more developed economies and big pharmaceutical industries don't allow it because it doesn't make any sense for a consumer to get information about a product from an advertiser. That just doesn't even, I mean, it's a medical product. You can't get information from advertisers about medical products. It's never going to be accurate. And when they say, ask your doctor about so-and-so, 
your doctor should be the one who helps you understand what you need for your health. That's the doctor's job. It's not the job of the advertisers or the pharmaceutical companies to tell you that. So the fact that we allow it is really, really bad. Did you ever, I mean, did that lean you towards looking into privatized medicine or just more individual doctor patient care, I would say. I mean, I know they have a, a obviously a patient workload, but I've always talked about like Dr. Peter McCullough and all these people I speak with about like if doctors had less of a patient workload, they get to know their patients a little bit better instead of just having something where like, can I get a prescription refilled or get this? Now, like we're doing things through telehealth, which I think still helps, but at the same time, nothing beats just going to a doctor and actually visiting them. But I mean, I don't know, maybe it's hard to get people to go to doctors, but I feel like this all just stems from we're just being very disconnected from our institutions in general. And that's why people, especially during this pandemic, upon many other things, have just been completely disarrayed. Yeah. I mean, I think the medical system in this country, uh, it's funny because my husband was a doctor and he quit right before COVID because he couldn't take it anymore. The medical system is so corrupt. And doctors, even he was working in a big, supposedly public academic institution, and all they cared about was money, generating income, and he's an oncologist, and he needs to sit with people who are, you know, in the last stages of their lives and their families and help them. And a lot of it is supporting the family and the patient through very hard transitions. And he was, didn't have any time and they wouldn't pay him. Like there's no code for sitting and, you know, helping a family for an hour to deal with the fact that their loved one is dying. There's no code for that. The codes are all for medicines and procedures. So that's why the entire system is geared towards just pushing more medicines and more procedures on everybody and not giving the doctors any time to do what you said, which is the absolute only thing that's important, which is the doctor-patient interaction. Uh, so yeah, the system is really, really bad. Now, when it came to the start of the pandemic or just the, the length of the pandemic, I mean, if we're still in a pandemic, but the whole situation with it, I mean, what, what were you, like, what did you learn about and what were your thoughts? I mean, if your husband quit his job before the COVID thing, I think he'd have to tell you a couple of things about the industry and much as you probably are aware of some of the things in the industry that made you doubt it a little bit already. But this pandemic, I think has everybody now starting to doubt everything at least i mean i think the tide's turning in the narrative of just getting a shot and things of that sort but there's a lot of people that i like my heart goes out to the just the industry as a whole like you're never going to get your trust back and i've spoken to many people on this policy issues with health and everything like that and they talk about the message wasn't relayed properly i was like well what was the message because everyone's lost and i don't even remember what the original message was but the fact that i never trusted really my doctors that much but now all the people that used to go to their doctors every single day are having doubts and all these types of things. And I go, you just basically completely severed that connection to any trust you would ever have with us. I agree. What can I say? Um, I have to say, though, that for me, it started way before the vaccine. So for me, it was a kind of actually an inverse experience because my experience started in March 2020 before any vaccines or anything like that when I... Uh, felt like everything that was being done was completely the opposite of what was scientifically and medically appropriate to be doing at that time. So masks, distancing, lockdowns, closing schools, everything they did to children, all of it, everything, it just seemed completely insane to me. And I knew that it was wrong medically so that it was going to cause more harm than help. And that it wasn't going to help because this is a virus that transmits 
you know, fast through the air and everybody's going to get it. And it's better if everybody who is not very vulnerable or very weak gets it and just lives with, you know, and then we just move on as opposed to trying to isolate people and just drag it on and on and on in the hopes of the vaccine. Um, and so for me, in March 2020, I realized that things were going crazy and something was wrong. And at that time, I thought, well, maybe they're all just totally incompetent. <laughs> maybe it's the panic. You know, maybe they really do think that this thing is going to kill everybody. But just it didn't make sense to me at all because the numbers didn't add up. And because we knew back in March 2020 that it was really mostly and predominantly affecting very old people with underlying conditions. So if you know that, why would you be telling people that it could kill anybody? Everybody's going to be affected. Your children are in danger. I mean, no child was in danger from this virus. Literally no child. Uh, you know, the statistics are that between 2020 and now, um, in the age group between zero and 20 years old, so that's that entire um, portion of the population, which is about over 70 million people, okay, over 70 million children and young adults between the ages of zero and 20, about 1,000 people died. It's, it's 0. 0.000, nothing. It's 0%. So, but when I would say that to somebody, if I would say to them, can you believe what we're doing with the schools, with the children, with the masking? Children aren't in danger from this uh, vaccine. I, vaccine. They are in danger from the vaccine. They're not in danger from this, uh, this uh, virus. And they would say to me, they would start screaming, well, are you a Trumpist? What's, you know, what? And I would say to them, I am talking to you about a scientific medical fact. And you are talking to me about some kind of political judgment that you're making. First of all, you know me. I'm a, you know, I was, but at back then, you know, I was a, a liberal Democrat. And you know that about me. You're my friend. You've known me for years. Don't tell me now. I'm telling you something scientific. I'm trying to talk to you about data and what's going on in the real world. And you're telling me like a political thing. And so that scared me more than anything because that made me realize that we can't have any conversations about the actual facts. Because anytime I try to talk about facts, people would start talking to me about politics or ideology or something that had nothing to do with it. And that was absolutely terrifying. Absolutely terrifying for me. Was this cause of the Trump administration? Like some of the things he said on COVID that somehow this got lumped into being like a Trumper or something of that sort? Because I've heard that before. It was There was a couple things that were launched out that I came across, which was if you don't wear a mask, you're going to kill somebody's grandparents, basically. Like that was like the focus in the beginning when they were talking about elderly people being very affected from this. Now, my grandparents live in Delaware, so that's the first state. And that is a largely old population. So they, they went into lockdowns way before Maryland did. But then when we started going into lockdowns, it became more of like a lot of people followed it in the beginning, and then eventually people got fed up. And then it was getting ridiculous with $5,000 fines if you left your town. And then you know if you were going out and not really caring about so much – I mean I did the mask thing. I never, didn't – that didn't bother me as much if I had to wear them in places or something like that. Now I've, I've talked to people that have done data to show that masks are bad. I've done, I've done that gambit. But I was like, look, if it makes someone feel more comfortable, but then at this point it was like people asking other people if they're vaccinated, assuming you're a Trumper if you're not vaccinated. I was like, look. 
I don't like both sides, but you can't just label somebody a Trumper, can't do this type of stuff. And then that Trumper thing became anti-vaxxer. It became now you got this whole uh, COVID killers and all these people that are trying to get other people infected to the point where there's now a website out there called Sorry Anti-Vaxxers that literally just lists off anti-vaxxer deaths. And if you look into some of those, it's like guy has two shots and not a booster, but he's technically considered unvaccinated where I was like, when you create a website designed to people dying of a disease and you're making fun of that, we're in a really dark time. So, yeah, I think, but see, I think it's interesting how different people experienced the same thing at different points in the pandemic. I experienced what you're describing from day one of the pandemic. Some people didn't experience that until the vaccine rollout, because I think for me, my, um, resistance came up from the very beginning. I hate masks. I think masks are horrible. I think they're personally, I, it's just uncomfortable for me. And so anytime I was forced to put on a mask, I was furious. And I had mask rage. Whenever I would walk into a room and see people wearing masks, I'd be like, oh my God, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. And you people are so stupid. I just can't believe you're doing this. And these are all like super educated, you know, including doctors, including scientists, like ridiculous. Um, so I experienced it from the beginning. Now you're going to really be shocked to hear this, but I had the inverse uh, experience where I trusted for some stupid, stupid reason that the vaccines at the beginning were actually something that we should do. And I did get vaccinated at the beginning. Uh, and so until I realized that this was a continuation of what I was experiencing in March 2020, it was the same thing, that they were just continuing the um, charade. And, and and then I realized what a horrible um, crime it was. So what happened to me was that once I started, I knew things were wrong when they started with the masks and the distancing and the shutdown. And I knew everything was bad. Uh, the vaccines came out. I got the initial vaccines. And then I started researching for real what happened. Like, why did this whole thing happen? And then I realized that everything that happened from the beginning until the vaccine was all the same. It was all part of one plan. It wasn't something different. And it was all part of one policy. So the policy started with the lockdowns and ended with the vaccines. And it was all one single policy. It wasn't like a whole bunch of little ones. It wasn't like a whole bunch of mistakes. It wasn't a whole bunch of uh, different people making up different things. It was one policy that was set from the very beginning. And it's what I call quarantine until vaccine, uh, which is that they decided from the very beginning that they were going to um, wait for the vaccines. That was the only solution. And in order to wait for the vaccines, we obviously have to not give anybody any early treatment. We have to keep everybody separate. We have to treat this like a bioweapon. And so the whole response was a response to a bioweapon. It wasn't a response to a virus. And so they treated it in sort of military national security ways instead of treating it in public health ways. And that was where uh, we all ended up, you know, getting crushed. Instead, the virus didn't get crushed, but we all got crushed instead. Where did you come across that data? And do you think it was like a test? Like it was a, a test run of like if there ever was a bioweapons thing, they think this is a great way to get everybody to see how everybody would react if there ever was a bioweapons attack. I um. 
never believed the bioweapons thing. I did believe it came from the lab, but then through my talks about bioweapons defense and bioweapons history, I had come across um, – there was a Novichok incident in the UK where two people were poisoned by door handle, and he goes – we, nobody uses that because you can easily treat it, but it's about detecting it. And he goes, what it was is when someone reads that in the news of a Novichok incident, the people that they're sending that message to are going to know because no one – that's like pulling out something from the 18th century that we have a cure for. It's like the whole purpose is to send a message. And I was like, wait, so there's still bioweapon warfare being done today? And it's like, oh, yeah, Russia does it. A bunch of stuff does it, which kind of had my wheels turn a little bit of like I'm now getting on board with the bioweapons thing with the COVID. I think it, it seemed a lot like a test. I mean the fact that they never talked about other other forms of treatments. They banned it. They said it's for emergency use rollout. But I was like, look, if you care about treating people instead of just like profit and also the fact of like you're just like this is the drug you're going to use. Nothing else. Nope. Any other person, you shame them. That's where I start asking questions. Yeah. And so, well, I think what you're talking about is different. There's all kinds of different kinds and categories of bioweapons that I'm not an expert in. So anything that I say right now is very general. Um, it's not, I don't have very specific knowledge, but like there's a bioweapon is a biological uh, agent. So either, uh, you know, it's either a pathogen or it's something that is created by a biological you know by living organism that can be used to hurt people so it could be a virus it could be a bacteria or it could be something like anthrax um and so it's if you put something on a door handle or if you give somebody something and it poisons them that's a tiny bit of a bioweapon that you're using on one or two people right but if you are releasing a pathogen into a broad population that's a different kind of bioweapon that's like a bio warfare then you could also be doing it on the battlefield. Like some people talk about plans to release a bioweapon on a battlefield, kill the enemy. We would have vaccines that would protect our troops or something. It's all very fantastical. I find it very science fiction-y and I don't think that it actually matches the real world. And I think COVID has proven that to us. So the thing about the lab leak is that it's a lab leak. I believe that, but it's a lab leak of a potential bioweapon. So they were re what they were researching in Wuhan was not just random viruses that they were raised they were going to come from bats to people. They weren't that is not what they were doing. What they were doing is they were taking those viruses and they were mutating them, not mutating at sometimes mutating, sometimes adding parts to them um, to see because in their very weird, um, twisted I think um, bio defense mindset it's extremely they think that it's extremely likely that a terrorist is going to get their hands on a very dangerous pathogen they think that terrorists or enemy states can release those pathogens that, and they think they can produce pathogens that are going to be as deadly as ebola and as transmissible as covid as SARS-CoV-2 I'm sorry so first of all from a virological point of view, that's very, very unlikely because it's, it's very transmissible. It's usually not very deadly. And if it's very deadly, it can't be transmissible because people die uh, before, it before it's widely transmitted. So, but that's the fantasy or that's the thing that they're trying to protect us against. Now, they, I think, some people think they're trying to kill everybody. I actually think they're trying to protect us, but that in the biodefense framework, there's no room for public health. In the biodefense framework, it's all about, it's a military framework. It's a national security framework. So if there's a bioweapon, we have to keep everybody away from it for as long as we can until we have a medical countermeasure. 
medical countermeasure is usually a vaccine or a treatment if you have one. So if you have that mindset, right, then it makes sense to you that, the, that if a potential bioweapon was released from a lab, um, whether or not uh, you believe that that bioweapon is very deadly, because I think everybody knows at the beginning that it wasn't, you still want to protect people and, as you said, or as we both are kind of talking about, use it as a, an opportunity to try out all of your biodefense mechanisms, particularly the medical countermeasures. So the main focus of biodefense is twofold. One, looking at all these weird viruses that could potentially be used as a bioweapon. Two, creating countermeasures so that if somebody uses those bioweapons against us, we can defend ourselves. Now, the medical countermeasure industry is a so-called public-private partnership, which is where the government and the pharmaceutical companies partner together and research how they can produce vaccines that will protect us from any pathogen that is ever released and anything that could possibly be used against us. And it's a billion and billion and billions and billions and billions of dollars have been spent on this, particularly since 9-11. Uh, so when I was doing my research, I was reading all of the sort of policy papers and all of the directives and things that had to do with biodefense. And then I was also reading all the ones that had to do with public health. Because of course our government, our public health agencies are trying to protect us from viruses that come from animals, you know, or uh, you know, novel viruses that haven't been in humans before, and they're trying to protect us from that. Whereas the biodefense people are trying to protect us from bioweapons. And what I found suggests to me, I don't have the final definitive proof that they knew it was a bioweapon but everything points in that direction, that they knew it was something that they were working on in Wuhan that was a bioweapon. It was released accidentally. It was not a very lethal bioweapon. It was just a potential bioweapon. But then they said, okay, well, there's a bioweapon released on the world. Let's do everything that we would normally do if there was a bioweapon. What is that? We are going to the world, shut it down, and we're going to develop medical countermeasures and we're going to administer them to the entire world's population. And doesn't that sound a lot like what they did? Or you did, right now, like it feels like the road was foggy and now it's kind of clear where I'm like, that's probably the best plausible solution of exactly what this whole thing was, because it was very interesting how we could not question that it came from the lab. A lot of people blamed like Trump. Um, I definitely think Trump kind of made it worse as well, too. But I also think like they didn't want to know that they were that they should never have came out that we were funding that lab over there. My theory was that they were researching something. We were like, Hey, we'll fund a little bit of your research if you give us a piece, but no, it turns out it was okay. So that's, that's insane though. I mean, the tides are now turning now where it's starting to be like, maybe we should look into that lab. I had a funny interaction on my show, a guy who studies those pangolins, the, the things that was originally, and he goes, this animal never gets any credit. And then after this virus, everyone blames. It. I'm just like, Oh God, I'm so sorry. But it's like, I've never even heard of that animal that the guy was studying and researching his whole career in, but then we were blaming everything. And then we blamed the market. And it was like, to me, it was like, they said you were racist. If it came from the lab, I go, you're saying it came from something that they were going to eat. I was like, that sounds even worse. Which is like, if you brought that up, people just like looked at you like a nut job and walked away. I was like, I don't know, maybe saying it out loud, I might be a nut job. You know what? That is absolutely true. All the ways that they tried to shut it down were so absurd and illogical 
and pointing out how illogical it was to say that it's racist that it came from a lab that we were funding, <laughs> the French established that lab. Okay, so the French gave the funding that established the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, American, British, Australian scientists were working with, and German, were all working with scientists from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. We were all working on it together. So to say that it was racist in some way to talk about the lab, or if it's not racist to say that these people are dirty and they eat dirty animals from a dirty market, you know, it's ridiculous. It, you are absolutely right, but they didn't want to listen to that. And they just used it as an excuse. And so they didn't want people to, now, now they're just blaming China. So the new thing is, because they still don't want to admit that we were involved in it and that it was our fault, partially, at least partially, because we were involved in manufacturing these bioweapons, um, they are now just blaming China. I don't know if you've noticed that the narrative has shifted a little bit, and now what they're doing is they're saying, oh, China, 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 they didn't tell us ahead, they tell us, they didn't um, reveal the leak, they didn't, you know, if it was a leak, which they're not admitting, but if it was, China didn't tell us, and also China was trying to hide things, and China isn't giving us the information. That is so, so untrue. It is just complete, completely false, because they don't want us to know. And they're hot. They, so what people find hard to accept is that we were working with China, not against China, throughout the pandemic. So we were working with China to hide the origins of the virus. China didn't want people to know. And our intelligence community and the international intelligence community didn't want people to know. So it was in everybody's best interest to not let people know. So China could, so the World Health Organization could pretend to send somebody over, you know, to send a delegation over to find out about the origins, and then the Lancet sent a commission to find out about the origins, and then, you know, Congress sent, you know, wants to send over a commission to find out about the origins. Nobody finds anything, right? How is that even possible? It's ridiculous. I like Josh Rogan's explanation of that. He goes, I love it how they just invite friends over there to investigate the lab. Like, yep, nothing's going on here. It's like, well, get somebody else who's not friends of the people that work at the lab. Of course, they're not going to say anything. But why do you think the tide's turning and we're just blaming China? Do you think it's a cover your ass strategy? Or do you think like I noticed it was right around the time of the CCP balloon. So I just started going, I mean. China does not respect the United Nations. It doesn't respect any of that type of stuff. And we always go on like NATO. We always use this as like, you got to respect this. We really push that. And China just doesn't care about that. So, I mean, I looked at it like this is like I thought maybe they could try and make good relations with China. I'm sure they were since they were working together, they're trying to mend something there. But at this point, it's just like with that stuff, I think they're just trying to blast China now. But China probably has way more dirt on our American government than anything. Exactly. I think they're trying to blame China. I think they have this mutual agreement where we're not going to expose them and they're not going to expose us. So we can blame them and they can like blame us because you know that the Chinese like to say that we brought the virus over to China. I don't know if you know that, that we manufactured it in Fort Detrick and then brought it over to China. So there's a lot of conspiracy theories going around. In China, they say that we did it. We say that they did it. They, we all did it together. <laughs> we all did it together and we're all hiding it together. And that's what, and because the mainstream media is completely complicit and completely taken over by um, the government and the intelligence community and the big business interests, okay, and they're all, they have a message, and that's the only message that we're going to hear. So people like you and me and 
and Jan and, you know, everybody who's doing alternative journalism are the only people who are actually going to look into this stuff with the goal of finding the truth, without a goal that's like an ideological goal. And that's why uh, I'm so scared, because in a normal world, there would be real journalists doing what I'm doing. Like, they would all be looking into this. Well, you never would have been called a racist for asking if it came from the lab. If they're doing gain-of-function research at that lab, it would just be a logical question. But we it was so demonized. I think media as well, too. I mean, my whole point was like out of – this was what it really shattered for me was when people were protesting, and they were telling people to stay inside their homes, but they weren't stopping the protests from happening. They were like – just, yeah, let people protest. That's fine. It's like, but that's everything. That's the no mask. That's the six foot thing. And it's like, they didn't want to do it because it was a, a social thing. They didn't want to talk about that. Same reason they didn't talk about, you know, just getting healthy, being like, hey, maybe you guys should get into shape if you're out of shape. Nobody said that. I go, why is nobody else? Like if somebody cures their cancer with cheese and they go, I cure my cancer with cheese. You don't go, screw you. You didn't use these other forms of treatment. We That would never happen. But with this, it was like it was only the vaccine. If you talked about vitamin D, if you talked about ivermectin, if you talked about any of these types of things. And I get like independent journalists and you know media that was able to try and help blast out there. But it doesn't reach the mainstream. The mainstream that everyone sees on their television. I mean, some people don't know about podcasts. Some people don't know about Substack. Some people don't know about all this. And it was like, those are the people that we really needed to actually do their jobs but i they all avoided the truth they all avoided talking about it. i think the first person was tucker carlson now and he's not even on air anymore so i don't think they avoided it by accident i think they avoided it by uh decrease by decree i think they were absolutely forbidden there is a um I only know about this because I, I researched the Kennedy assassination. I've spoken to like all those names in there, but there is a document in the new release that came out that talked about like certain things media can say when it comes to the Kennedy assassination. It's a whole list of words they cannot use. Like they can use the words conspiracy when it's talking about crit criticism against the Warren Commission, but the words that they can't use was talking about like CIA stuff and anything that was pointing towards the government or any like mafia affiliated members that actually had a connection with the government, which is like the ones we use to try and assassinate Castro, which which I was like, no, hold on a second. That all came out through independent research, but you had the media say you cannot say the words Traficante, you can't say the word CIA, you can't see the word um whatever Cold War intelligence, you can't talk about any of that type of stuff, which was just like, okay, so this is Mockingbird, you know, Operation Mockingbird. I don't know if you know what that is. It says it ends in three months at 63. It said it ended in three months. Well, in the new release of JFK files, a document related 65 talked about getting your covert media assets in line to go pitch this story. And I go, see, that's where it is. When you find a lie, everything they say at that point, you can question it. You can – it's not validated. You can go into it and say they're probably lying again. Let's find another lie, much like when they said there's no bat at that lab and Obama's holding a bat in his hand at that lab in 2014. So uh, there's a lot – you said a lot of things um, that I want to try to to. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> one thing is that um, going back to the protests, I'm sure you'll be shocked to hear that I participated in Black Lives Matter protests, and I'm a big Black Lives Matter supporter. Um, but uh, and those protests were to me ridiculous because people, everybody was wearing masks and everybody was social. I mean, it was dumb. I I'm not. I think masking outside and social distancing outside is just stupid. But the problem with those uh, protest was not those protests. The problem was that when other people protested other things, 
like COVID policy, what, like the truckers, that was where the problem was. So to me, it wasn't a problem that they allowed Black Lives Matter to protest. To me, it was a problem that everybody else who tried to protest the COVID tyranny, basically, uh, in all different countries, not just in the United States, not just in Canada, I guess, which is where the truckers were, but in Australia, in England, in France, and a lot of other countries, got shut down brutally, brutally. And we know that the truckers, that in Canada, they even, you know, shut down the bank, bank accounts and stuff. But to me, the problem with the protest wasn't who they allowed. It wasn't who they didn't allow. It was who, I'm sorry, it wasn't who they allowed. It was who they did not allow to protest. I might have said that wrong. I, I don't mean the Black Lives Matter protests are bad. I, I, I not, that's not what I mean. I mean, um, just anybody gathering in circles like that of large masses of people. Right. I know what you mean, but I think that the bigger, the bigger issue, I think a lot of people make a big issue out of them allowing the Black Lives Matter protests. I think they should have allowed any protests because that we're in a democracy. So they should have allowed the Black Lives Matter protests and they should have allowed the truckers and they should have allowed all the people who were protesting against the lockdowns and against the, the school closures, the parents who were trying to protest and the people who were protesting later about the vaccines. I mean, that's the real problem is that if we're not allowed to protest, then we're not really a democracy anymore. And if they're choosing, if they're picking and choosing who can protest, even if I support the people who are protesting, they need to allow everybody to protest. Uh, and so that's the big problem. I mean, that to me uh, indicates that, I mean, there's so many things during COVID that indicated the whole uh, collapse of, of democracy. But what you were talking about in terms of uh, media infiltration also back so I was never a conspiracy theorist. I never look into any conspiracies. I don't really even care. I never did care about them at all uh, until now. Because when I started doing the research on COVID, all of the actual facts and all of the evidence led to the conclusion that it was absolutely 100% a conspiracy. And once I saw that, I started reading things about in the past how our intelligence community had already infiltrated the media all the way back then and they're still doing it it's not new it's they're doing the same thing and we knew about it then and now we know about it again and i just when you said about like the mainstream media the problem is that the mainstream media is no longer doing journalism and so they're not trying to expose anything i've had cnn i've had cnn and fox correspondents on here and people that left and talked about how tied together it was like if you're going to report a story but it messes with the business interest of that network then you probably can't report that story or you're going to lose your career and if you have a family that's a little bit of a risky move to do where we talk about journalism ethics so i mean i get it but i've talked to people that said that you should have the integrity to want to report the truth and i do agree with that and some that you do see that as well too is with um reporters that don't have families that are more than happy to put their jobs on the line at their network to try and get a story out there and they end up running their own media but it sucks it has to be like that like these media outlets shouldn't be so connected with so many business interests everybody promoting pfizer you know tell them you don't have a conflict of interest there well i think you need to think about it on a much bigger scale so even though i'm not a conspiracy theorist and like i don't believe conspiracy conspiracy theories i believe conspiracy facts so there's a difference right and in COVID, we have conspiracy facts. So we know for a fact from the Twitter files and also from people who are doing research much before the Twitter files, actually, that the intelligence community and the government were pretty much controlling what 
could be and could not be said on all social media. So all social media was basically being, the, the content was already being mediated by the government. So think about it. We have big uh, tech, right? So, so social media, big tech. We have big pharma. We have the government all together. When that happens, you no longer have a possibility of having a free press or any kind of independent, I mean, we do have independent journalism, thank God. Uh, but any kind of journalist, like you said, any rogue journalist within that framework of the, you know, big media, big tech, and government, all, if anybody within that framework who tries to step out of line, like you said, whether or not they, I mean, if they have a family, it's going to ruin their lives. If they're, you know, if they don't have a lot of people depending on them, maybe they can afford to do it, but then they're going to just get kicked out and they're going to have to go work for an alternative media company, or they're going to have to ha have a substack or do something like that. And unfortunately, not enough people have realized that the information that they're consuming from mainstream media. Now, I used to read the New York Times, listen to NPR, all of that. Starting in March 2020, I could not listen to NPR anymore. I can't. I stopped. I, re I read the New York Times just to, to scream at it, you know. Um, and look at all the lies that are being published, literal lies, just lies all the time and propaganda. It's all propaganda. So now it's, I, I wanted, I'm sorry. I wanted to ask about like with the vaccines, it, going back to what you said about it being like a China defense bioweapon defense, is that, that they keep forcing it down, even though they know that it's like the vaccines actually are hurting people, but when they keep doing the boosters and stuff like that, is that because they're trying to find something to help? you know, tear it down? Because I don't believe necessarily the world population control thing, but I don't know if they're also trying to still attack the bioweapon issue, but they're just trying to manipulate to be like, we don't have the right recipe. Let me add a pinch of salt and then see if that, is it that type of thing? So that's a really good question. That's a really good question. I think actually what happened with the vaccine is, um, well, first you have to understand about what the vaccines are. So the mRNA platform that they're using is super, super important to understand because that's like sort of the crux of the entire plan from the bioengineering of the bioweapon to the medical countermeasures development. Um, why is it so important? Because it's a fantasy, like I said, they have this fantasy of that we're being threatened, that we could at any time be attacked by these horrible germs, right? That somebody's gonna unleash on us, that they engineer to kill all of us in two seconds. Um, and that we have to have something to counter immediately. And if you just try to develop a vaccine every time a new pathogen arises, the way that we do for the flu, let's say, it takes a really long time and the way they develop it is just very time consuming. And we have to do it every time anew for each one that arises. The mRNA platform is, is like a framework. It's like, it's like, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's like a frame where all you have to put in is you have to put in sort of the, the code. It's like a code for the particular virus that's attacking you now. You put it into the same frame and you just change the code and the frame is the same. So you don't ever have to change anything. So the, the platform, what a platform means is a way of making a vaccine. And the platform, that's the mRNA platform, is always the same frame that you're using, the, the delivery mechanism that you're using to deliver it to the body. And all you have to change is the code of the um, 
protein that you want your body to produce in order to for your body to produce the um, antigens in order to protect your body from that from that uh, pathogen. And so it's something that they think. Now I think they have not proven that this works. I think it does not work, and I think it will never work. But they think that within 60 days, 30 days, 20 days, 24 hours, I mean, they have all kinds of crazy time frames. They want it to be able to take whatever new pathogen is launched at us, stick it into that framework, and produce vaccines immediately so that within 60 days, the entire population of the country can be vaccinated and protected. Okay, that's why they pushed it on everyone. Um, once they started doing the boosters, in my opinion, now I'm just, this is just my opinion, it stopped being a biodefense thing. It started just being a pharmaceutical mega, you know, money thing. <laughs> and not only that, the government had already promised the pharmaceutical companies a certain amount of money, and they'd already bought a certain amount of doses, which like way more doses than the entire population of the world, basically. Um, not just our government, like the, the European Union and other governments had bought so many vaccines and so many doses. They just had to do something with them. So that was part of it. Part of it was just pure corruption. Uh, so I think once they used the mRNA vaccine platform, they proved, and I'm putting this in big, huge quotes, they proved to themselves that it was safe and effective. How did they prove that? Not everybody dropped dead immediately. And um, they had studies showing that it, you know, reduced uh, people getting symptoms by 100%, but I'm not even going to go into the details of the uh, studies. It's very uh, controversial. My, my favorite is when someone tells me, yeah, but your symptoms would have been worse if you didn't get the shot. And I was like, but what's your crystal ball technology that tells me that my symptoms would have been worse? Because like, and they never give me an answer on that one. They just kind of look at me like, oh, this person's lost. I'm like, but seriously, I beat it in three days. And I didn't only have, I think I had one bad day, but my bad day was just me sleeping longer. And that's, that is weird for me. I'm an insomniac. So that is a little bit out of the usual, but now I'm unvaccinated and I beat it in three days. But that word always comes out of like, if it, if it's not mentioning that your symptoms would have been worse, then it's, well, then you're, do you care about getting people sick? And I go, but that doesn't work because you spread it as well too. And it actually shows that you guys keep getting COVID. I haven't got it since. And I work at a gym. So. That's right. You're, you're right about everything that you say. Now, my question to you is, are they still saying that to you even now in 2023? Remember, I, I, well, we were talking a little bit off air, but when I was talking to that, that guy, we were having a conversation about it because I showed him I had this guy on my show. I don't know if you know who he is. And then he kind of looked at me. I was like, well, what's that face? Now I got to ask about it. And he starts popping out the questions like I do. I don't think mandates are against your freedoms. I think everyone should get their shot. It's your civic duty to get your shot. And I go, yeah, but what's the benefits of getting that shot? And then he mentioned something of like, well, you're saving lives. And I'm like, whose life am I saving if you still spread it? He goes, it's not about that. I go, but who? there's people out there, the only people that they care about, you only care about people you know. And he kind of looked at me, he's like, I care about all people. I was like, I do too, but when it comes to affecting change and doing things, you care about the people that you can put a name to their face, people usually in your family and your friends. And he kind of looks at me and I go like, do you care about people in China? And he goes, yeah, I care about people in China. And then I just go, well, what are you doing to help them over there? And he kind of went silent on me. And I go, this isn't like a debate. I don't need to argue about this type of stuff. But when it comes to setting policies and things, the world was asked to take a shot that has barely any data on what the ramifications are going to be, uh, have serious questions that are not being addressed. 
and you're asking them to take it to better humankind and save your neighbor. And I go, when we get to the save the neighbor talk, what methods do you have to prove that it doesn't, that it saves a neighbor? How does the vaccine save a neighbor if you still spread it? And then nobody answers that question. Then you just get divisivized as like a anti-vax conspiracy nut. And I'm just like, they're serious questions. I mean, if I stump you, then that's not a bad question. You know what I mean? I'm really shocked and horrified that you're still having people say that to you now. Maybe it's because I don't talk to people about it because I don't want <laughs> I don't want to hear it. I'm shocked that people can still say that in April 2023 because in April 2023, I mean, we've known this for two years now, but let's say for sure for a year at least, for sure, we have known that the vaccines do not stop transmission. They do not stop you from getting it. Therefore, they, there is nothing about the vaccine that protects your neighbor. You don't have to argue with them about people in China. All you have to say is, show me a scientific study. Okay, ask him. Say, have you seen a scientific study that shows that these vaccines prevent transmission or infection with the virus? If you don't, then it's a personal decision. If you think it's going to help you in some way, great. I don't think it's going to help me, and me not getting it has zero impact on you or on anybody because it doesn't stop transmission and doesn't stop infection, period. I mean, that's like such a fundamental, obvious, clear fact that even the mainstream media has admitted, even the FDA has admitted, the CDC, the WHO, Bill Gates, everybody knows. Fauci, they've all said it. It doesn't stop transmission or infection. So how can a... Uh, intelligent human being say to you that you are a crazy anti-vaxxer for not wanting to get vaccinated when it's a personal health choice. You think it's going to help your health? Go for it. Personally, I think you are endangering yourself by getting it. I'm, I'm not happy that I got it. Um, but telling somebody else that they have to get it now in April 2023, nobody's saying that anymore. Like, where are you? What planet are you living on? Not even the health authorities are saying that anymore. The health authorities, the only thing that they can actually say based on the evidence is, well, they can't say anything with the boosters because they don't have any evidence for the boosters. The boosters are completely, I mean, if we thought that the studies for the initial doses were shoddy, which they were, and not necessarily, didn't necessarily prove anything, um, the boosters don't even have any evidence or any studies. And the whole claim that it's gonna make your symptoms worse or better or whatever. There's no study on that. Where did you come up with that? That nobody studied that. Not a single study, not a single observation even, not even an observational study has been made that getting the shot makes your symptoms less. It's just a talking point, much like every advertisement has a selling point or some type of thing to it. And what my biggest fear honestly with you is that we're gonna drop this topic and we're never going to talk. Nobody's going to want to talk about it because it'll get into one of these discussions if they don't know what side you're on about the vaccine. But it'll become something that we just go never talk about it. Then you forget about it and you don't get the damage. I guess the the whole crown, ground control thing, you don't reverse a lot of things that have happened already and that have been completely damaged. Ivermectin is a big one. Um, I had Pierre Corey on my show a while back. Um, his episode is the only one that's not on YouTube. 
But I, when I looked up like later, I think before I spoke with McCullough again, I had uh, looked at the CDC website and they were using ivermectin as a CD6 study, which was like, this might help with your symptoms of COVID. I go, guys, did we not just take those people off platforms? People like myself who were talking about it, others that were talking about it, and you reduce them to a smaller window. Like it made it, it's so it's, it's, it's labeled as horse pace. I mentioned it to the guy I was telling you about earlier, and he just goes, that's a horse pace. And I go, man. Where are you getting your news from? And he'll mention things like independent journalists, but he'll mention a couple names from like, those guys don't talk about COVID though. None of those people talk about COVID really. The ones that you're parroting talking points are, are from like Anderson Cooper or you're par parroting stuff from like, I think some points on Tucker Carlson he was mentioning, but Tucker Carlson completely switched was when he dropped them as like, this is my stopping point with Tucker, where I'm like, are you looking at the most recent stuff? Are you looking at the fact that like they changed the term vaccinated or being like that whole, that whole thing. Now I asked him how many shots you have. He says, I have two. I go, you haven't gotten a booster. He goes, no, I go, then you're not technically considered vaccinated. And then he just goes, well, and goes like this. I go, no, there is no, ah, uh, I'm serious. Like we got to have the discussion about it. Cause once you really start talking about it, you can start to see when people are just like, I'm stuck here in my standing point and I'm not going any farther forward. And I think that's going to be because some people regret the shots and they're not as open to admitting that they regret getting one and they don't want to feel like they were duped. So it was either getting someone to get theirs. So they kind of feel in the same boat or they just don't ever want to talk about it because I mean, my parents are vaccinated and you know, they tried to get me to do it at one point, but I'm 25. You're not, they send me a text. I'm like, yeah, well, okay. Um, but I, now I get a text like, Hey, you know, I am kind of skeptical about, you know, getting a booster. I don't want to get one now. I actually regret getting my two shots. And I'm like, yeah, see, that's why, you know, I'll worry about my health. Cause that's the best thing I can do is make sure like I can do this. But you know, everyone that was out there pushing them. I mean, at this point, I don't see anybody doing that really anymore. Good. Because your friends or whoever it was that you were talking to, if they aren't boosted, then they obviously know that that <laughs> they obviously know that it's potentially more harmful than beneficial. That's all you need to know. If it's potentially more harmful than beneficial, potentially, it doesn't have to be a fact, just potentially. Why would you get it? Why would you get it? It's potentially more harmful than beneficial. And the benefit is, is, is nothing as far as transmission and infection goes. So the only benefit, I mean, I don't really know what they think the benefit is. There's really no proven benefit whatsoever. Um, some people still cling to the idea that for older and vulnerable people, it does reduce the risk of infection. I don't necessarily believe that, but I am still, I haven't done enough research. So I don't ever make claims unless I have the data. And I'm not going to make that claim until I have clear data. And guess what? No government is releasing data and no pharmaceutical company is even doing the research to show what the long-term effects are. No, nobody wants anybody to know. Everybody's hiding the side effects, the death. Nobody wants to count them. Nobody wants to acknowledge them. You know, little tiny things are trickling out where they're admitting like one kid died in Australia from the vaccine, you know, one person died in England, you know, so they're admitting like little things here and there, but we all know it's a lot more than that. YouTube updated their policy guidelines to talk about vaccine side effects if it's you experiencing the shot or you experiencing the vaccine side effect. They said that's okay for you to talk about if it's you that are the one that experiences those side effects, but you can't mention other people's. I can't talk to lawyers about people who are representing clients. I mean, it's a small update. Um, any COVID topic on YouTube is just like not even safe to even talk about. But when it comes to 
I guess the acknowledgement, I mean, I guess the relationship between Pfizer, I mean, have you looked into that at all? Have you looked into see why, I think it was Pfizer is the only one that gets a pass on being sued by any of these, anybody that wants to sue about the vaccine or is it, it's the other ones too, Johnson and Johnson? So here's the thing. From my, re the ones that I've researched so far are Moderna, Pfizer. Pfizer isn't the company who had the technology. The, te the company is a German company called BioNTech. It's not really the Pfizer vaccine. It's the BioNTech Pfizer vaccine. So here's my story. Um, I don't have proof for this. I only have uh, sort of a lot of evidence that points to this being the case. Okay, so I'm just making that, that um, I want that to be clear. I'm not saying this is proven. I'm saying this is what I suspect based on a lot of evidence that from the very beginning, because the Biodefense Network was controlling the COVID response, and they were developing the medical counters. Now they started developing them in January of 2020, if not December of, not, of 2019. Uh, you know, warp speed started officially in like April of 2020, but that was like long after everybody had already started developing everything. Uh, particularly, um, the government was already working. So NIAID, the um, National Institute of um, Infectious Diseases, which is Fauci's uh, Fauci's Institute, they were already working with Moderna before COVID to develop medical countermeasures. So they were already working on biodefense with Moderna. So Moderna was already in a public-private partnership with the government to develop this type of so-called vaccine, okay, before COVID. Um, and they, for many, for, I don't know, since the early or mid um, 2010s, they were interested in this platform in particular. And they thought that this was really great, but for the reason that I explained before, because you could plug anything into it and immediately develop a vaccine really, really fast and protect your troops and protect your populations in case somebody released something. So they were really interested in it. For a decade at least, they, said they tried it and tried it and tried it. It never worked because it was too toxic, okay? So it never got into phase three trial. Phase three is the trial before you actually release a product onto the market. It never made it. Never made it out of, I don't know, phase one or phase two. That was, that was Moderna. BioNTech, the German company that was also working on mRNA platforms. So these are two companies in the world that are working on this technology that a lot, some people see a lot of promise in it, but a lot of people have given up on it. A lot of people. Now, I don't know if you had um, Robert Malone on your show. I did. So he who was involved in the early development of these mRNA platforms. And he himself says that after a decade or two of failed experiments, nobody was working on them anymore. Like nobody saw any promise in them anymore. BioNTech was working on them in the, in the context of cancer. So they were trying to find cancer vaccines. Never worked, but they were, had been working on it for about a decade. They were a small company. Moderna had been trying to do cancer and other vaccines. Nothing ever worked, okay? Nothing. And then all of a sudden, they had this opportunity to develop these things really, really fast and bypass all the regulatory hurdles, all of the oversight from the FDA and from good manufacturing practices and all of that and just like, like rush it into market 
show the world that this was the greatest thing ever, you know, that now we were going to be able to have this medical countermeasure that would protect us, but protect everybody. And so that's what they did. So I think in January 2020, they decided that, and again, I'm saying this is my theory. This is not proven, but it's just where the evidence is leading me. Because I've only looked at Moderna, BioNTech, and Pfizer so far. Because those are the ones that are the biggest ones. And those are the ones that are the mRNA technology. Um, and they decided in January 2020 that those were the ones that were going to work. So they decided in January 2020 that we were all going to get an mRNA vaccine, no matter what. No matter what. If people died, if people had vaccine injuries, that's like if you're on a battle. So they were thinking about this as a war, right? It's a war against this virus. It's really weird and perverse. I was thinking about it today. But in a war, you don't worry about casualties as long as you think that at the end you're going to win the war, right? So you might have some casualties along the way that are terrible and sad and whatever, but, but your goal as the general who's directing this, and by the way, generals were directing Operation Works, not doctors, not public health people. Um, if you're thinking about it as a war, you know, yeah, we might have some casualties along the way. That's terrible, but in the end, we're saving millions of lives. Okay, so they had a particular frame of mind and a particular frame of reference that is not a public health reference, not a public health paradigm. It's a war paradigm. It's a national security paradigm. If you're using that, then you think to yourself, okay, the best opportunity to take this amazing technology, it's going to save millions of people, you know, maybe along the way, a few people will die, whatever, we'll, we'll cover it up, we won't talk about it, um, but in the end, we'll show everybody that this is like the greatest thing ever, and it's going to save the world. And that's what I think happened. Now, I think uh, it went wrong in so many ways. I think that the amount of deaths and adverse events was probably more than they expected. Maybe, maybe not, because all the previous trials had shown that there were enormous safety problems, and that's why they had never been able to bring a product to market, ever. Um, but I think that they didn't really care, and uh, they thought, they, either they convinced themselves, now this is where I don't know, because this is like getting into their heads. Did they really think they saved millions of lives? because they didn't, or did they have to lie and convince people even though they knew that they didn't save millions of lives? I think they want to believe it. I really do. I think they want to believe it. So, so Pfizer, when you talk about Pfizer having indemnity and not being able to be sued, Moderna, Pfizer, BioNTech, all the companies um, in the United States now, and I don't know the laws in the other countries, so I don't know if the EU also gave them, I think the EU might have given them a similar uh, path. But in this country, the way that they structured the laws is so perverse and it's so unconstitutional, but you can't, it's people who have tried to sue have hit this weird wall because what you say, like you might try to say, okay, Pfizer committed fraud because they knew that their batches, that the whole manufacturing process was a huge mess because it was it was way too fast, it was way too big, it was the scale was unmanageable. There's no way any company or any government or any in the world could have possibly produced that many vaccines in that short a time frame in a safe manner. It's just not possible physically. You can throw a gazillion, quadrillion dollars at it, and it still won't be possible. 
Um, and so, so people have tried to sue. But then Pfizer said, wait a minute, the contract that we signed with the government, and there's a woman named Sasha Latipova. Do you know about her? Mm-mm. Okay, you have to look her up. Sasha Latipova has done all the research on the contract between the vaccine manufacturers and the government. And in those contracts, it says, and this, so her research dovetails on my research, because my research is about how the policy for the pandemic came from the national security uh, state. And her research shows that the vaccines and the contracts also came from the national security state. So it was all part of one, one project. And so her research shows the Department of Defense signed the contract with the pharmaceutical company, not the FDA, not BNIH, not HHS, which is Health and Human Services. None of the public health agencies were involved. It was the Department of Defense. That's the military. And the military signed the contracts with the drug companies and said, okay, with Pfizer, for, with Pfizer they said, you are not you're providing a demonstration, a manufacturing demonstration, and you're providing a prototype of a product. You're not providing pharmaceutical products, and you're not providing a, um, something that needs to go through all kinds of regulations and all kinds of oversight. Basically, you're just producing a demonstration and a prototype. And any uh, safety oversight or regulations is out of scope of this contract. Literally. So when people sue Pfizer and say this was unsafe and you knew it was unsafe, they say, no, no, no. We didn't have to care whether it was safe or not because the government told us we didn't have to care. And then you try to sue the government and the government says, no, no, no. You know, we're not responsible because, you know, I don't, it's like this whole kind of um, catch 22 where nobody's responsible. That's a common agency tactic. If you look at like the Watergate hearings or anything like that, you'll see, oh, I don't, that's not the CIA's document. That's the FBI's document. Then they have to go find the FBI and ask them. And they go, nope, it's the NSA's document. Then it's the DOD. Then it's all the other agencies. And it ends up taking four or five, six, seven months to them to get an answer back. But when I spoke to one of the vaccine lawyers, he mentioned that weird wall was the fact that somehow Pfizer had slipped it in to not be able to be liable for a lot of these things. And when I'm looking at like, I had. They didn't somehow flip. It was, it was, it was always in every plan. It was discussed that the only way to get these companies to manufacture vaccines at scale is to give it. I mean, it was discussed. Fauci said it, Gates said it in all kinds of exercises and in all kinds of conferences that they had before the pandemic about making a universal flu vaccine or about, you know, Gates is really obsessed with vaccines in general. Like the only way to get the private sector involved is to make sure that they have no liability for anything. So Pfizer didn't have to flip anything in there. I mean, they pretty much just gave it to them on a silver platter. I'm, I'm with you on that, but this was a year ago and this guy was pro mandates, but he was a vaccine lawyer that was talking about. Yeah. So he was talking about um, that when he, that's just his wording if he slipped it in there. Um, but I had to look into Pfizer's uh, history. They bought a Vigo ordinance plan. If you ever looked that up on Wikipedia, it was bought by Pfizer in 2014. It's an old bioweapons facility um, where they were make manufacturing anthrax bombs. 
and they were giving it to the British back before the whole ban treaty and everything like that. But it, that facility had been on sale for like 20 years and Pfizer happens to buy it. I'm like, that's like buying the Amityville house. Like you can buy any house you want, but you decided I'm going to choose this one and we're going to say it's not a coincidence. And then I'm listening to this is just random, but I was watching Wolf of Wall Street. And, you know, with Leonardo DiCaprio, and when he's getting yelled at about the dinner, he said, how, why, how do you spend $80,000 on a dinner? He goes, it was the Pfizer clients. And I go, did he say Pfizer? And I had to rewind it and I clipped it and I posted it. I was like, that's, he said Pfizer, hundred percent. He said Pfizer. I was like, so this relationship or this name had been known, but it just seemed like everyone heard about it during this pandemic, which was to me, I had to look into that relationship. How long had they been working with the government and their history goes back a pretty long time. And they have plenty of pharmaceutical, uh, lawsuits and everything like that in the past, but it seems like everyone's just aware of them. The really interesting thing about Pfizer is in this COVID context is that it was not their technology. So as I said, it was BioNTech, which is a German company. And Germany is heavily, heavily involved in the whole biodefense thing. Um, I'm researching that. There's also some researchers, one or two in Germany um, or in Europe who are looking at it. But BioNTech had the technology, but I think what happened is we had Moderna and we didn't want Moderna to be the only one because Moderna was already working with the government and it didn't want to look like, oh, well, we're just choosing our pet, you know, pharmaceutical company that we've already been working with. And by the way, they have this patent arrangement where the government agencies that are working with Moderna actually get money from the vaccine sales and Moderna gets it as well. So like they're actually getting money off of it. It's not just Moderna. Um, and with Pfizer, I think what they did, and now I'm theory, I don't have proof of this, but this is weird. Look, you've talked to me this long. I believe you anything you say at this point. No, I like to be very specific about what I know for sure and what I just speculate. So speculation is that um, when they wanted the mRNA platform, they knew that this other company in Germany had the platform. They didn't have any manufacturing capacity or anything like that. So they brought in Pfizer, an enormous American or multinational corporation that can scale up production. Also, it can get the approvals through the, the American system, so the DOD defense contracting system, whereas in Germany and in Europe, I have no idea what the contracting system is. Um, but here, they were able to partner with Pfizer, call it the Pfizer vaccine, make Pfizer the American manufacturing, you know, whatever representative of this vaccine, which is why, like you said, everybody started hearing about Pfizer. So they, they, put, they put Pfizer and BioNTech together, I think, so that they would be able to get it through the process the way that they did without any oversight and without any regulation or anything like that. Um, a lot of people knew about Pfizer. There's a lot of big pharmaceutical companies that have had this horrible, terrible influence and that have been sued in multiple billion-dollar lawsuits over lots of different things. I mean, look at the opioid crisis, right? And I was just reading today an article about how, how is it possible to think, so if you think about the, the liberals and the left, I put those that in quotes, um, about how how um, untrusting they were of the pharmaceutical companies in the past, like how, you know, they knew, they knew that the pharmaceutical companies were all just out to make a profit and that they were lying about opioids, for instance, and that they caused the opioid epidemic. So people who know that about the pharmaceutical companies are now allowing the pharmaceutical companies to inject them five or six or seven times with substances that we don't even know how they were manufactured. We don't know what's in the vials. You know, the whole process was completely corrupted. Um, 
they're allowing that to happen when they know they know how the pharmaceutical industry has behaved in the past. I don't understand. There's a disconnect there. It's the the fear, the fear scaring, the narrative pushing of fear and all this type of stuff. It's always that that just causes people to lose everything and say, here's my trust. You know, I, I, I respect that you'll do what you need to do with it. And then it goes away. I mean, there were stereotypes about the pharmaceutical industry. There were stereotypes about media. There was a bunch of stuff and all that just went out the window. And I get it. Look, in the beginning, I was nervous, too. I was like, what the hell is going on? But after a while, you got to start being like, all right, is any of this really making sense? But everyone that that fear thing was for a very long time. And there's even things like I went to my doctor's office recently and hadn't been in a while. And um, I walk in because I know they need masks. I walk in with a mask on. And as soon as I sit down, nobody's wearing a mask. And I go, what? They're like, you don't need to wear a mask anymore. I'm like, excuse, we just fought this for how long? And then I just pulled it down and I was like, okay. And then we're scheduling an appointment. Uh, and they're like, haven't been here since January. I was like, that's not that long. You know, if I'm not sick, why don't I go to a doctor? Like January 22, I was like, oh, okay. That makes a little bit more sense. But they were like, yeah, you requesting for a medication to be filled doesn't make the doctor's money. They need to come see you in an appointment. And I just went, right. And they're like, want to make appointment in August? I was like, book it. And then I'm not going to show up to that. I, at that point, I've already just, I don't understand the game anymore, what they want to play, the telehealth. I mean, look, get it. I understand p businesses need to make money, but in institutions and in health should be about helping people. And, you know, any forms of treatment, you know, not shaming doctors who want to use a other form of treatment and causing people to censor their work on the basis of, okay, I can only push this drug because it makes these people money. That's very, very dark. And I mean, to me, I don't know, it, my trust in it's gone. I mean, are you optimistic in any aspect of any of these things to make a change? I actually had the same experience that you did. So I had a medication that was being refilled by my primary doctor um, and for three years, I didn't go see him because I was fine. There's no reason for me to see him. And they call me and they were like, okay, well, you need to come in for a wellness visit. And I was like, first of all, I hate that term wellness visit. If I'm well, I don't need a visit. So why are you telling me that I need to come in? I'm fine. Just refill my prescription, please. Um, and they didn't want to refill it. And I said, I don't need to come in for a wellness visit. And they didn't refill it. And, you know, that can cause bad things if you don't get your medication. And so I wrote to them, it's all through this portal now, right? You never talk to anybody. You just are emailing people through a portal. So I'm emailing them and I'm saying, you know, this is borderline malpractice. If you deprive me of my medication, this and this and this could happen. And so they immediately filled it um, because clearly it is malpractice. <laughs> they can't just deprive me of my medication because I'm not coming in for a wellness visit, which is a useless, unnecessary thing that's not even related to my medication. Um, and then I stopped going there and I wanted to look for another primary. This was literally a few months ago. And I said, okay, well, I'll just look for somebody in the neighborhood. And I just found somebody in the neighborhood and I said, okay, I'll go give it a try. I go into the office. Of course, there's the masking and all that, which makes me crazy, but I did it. I go into her office. There is a screen on the wall that has pharmaceutical advertisements on it in my doctor's office. Now, I had seen that in my dermatologist's office. I go to a dermatologist once a year to check my mold to make sure I don't have skin cancer because I have it in my family. Um, so that's not a wellness visit. That's a necessary visit. And 
they in my dermatologist's office. I mean, the advertise. I mean, the whole thing is like a huge giant advertisement for various skin things. Okay, fine. You know, plastic surgery, cosmetic stuff. I don't think that should be in a doctor's office, but I understand the industry is related to the doctor. How my personal primary doctor has pharmaceutical has going on a screen in her office. I mean, to me, that was like shocking. Then I, we sit down. She's never met me before. I'm a new patient. This is a new intake, right? She says, okay, so um, have you had your flu vaccine? No, I'm not getting any of those anymore. So I said, no, I'm not getting that anymore. And she said, uh, okay, well, you know that it can help you reduce your risk of illness or whatever. She said, did you get your COVID vaccine? Did you get your COVID booster? I said, no, I'm not getting that. And she said, why not? And I said, well, you know that there's no evidence that that has any efficacy or safety or anything. You know that there's no evidence, right? I said that she's a doctor. She should know if she's prescribing it, right? And she, so she moved on. So she said, okay, um, do you know that if you get COVID, there's a medication that you can take? And I said, oh, really? And I, I played dumb and I said, what, what is that? And she said, um, like the one that they're, uh, pushing the, the Pfizer one. Uh, so she said that brand they're pushing. And I said, okay, well, you realize that there's no uh, evidence that that helps somebody who's already had COVID. And that's true. I know what the studies are. I, I've looked at the studies. So you know that there's no evidence that somebody who's already had COVID, which pretty much everybody has by now, and I know I have, um, that that's any helpful at all. You know that, right? So she didn't answer and she moved on and she said, okay, so do you want, you know, uh, when was your last colonoscopy? I said, well, I'm not getting those anymore. And she said, <laughs> why not? And I said, did you know that a research just came out showing that it has very little impact on overall survival? Um, so then she started getting really upset. <laughs> she said, well, what about your mammogram? And I said, I'm not doing that anymore either. <laughs> and so she said, well, I don't know what to do because my whole job is getting to do those things. And I said, wow. That's I'm really scary. sorry that I said, well, I'm really sorry that that's your job. Because, and I'm sorry that I'm being such a difficult patient, but I'm, if that's your job, that's not what I'm not going to do that. And then now it's coming out. I mean, I knew this from my husband, but, um, you know, there are financial incentives for practices and hospitals for what percentage of patients they can get to do all of these things. How is that? ethical how is that medicine so when you ask me if i hope no i have no hope my hope is to find alternative practitioners to find doctors who are outside of the system and to avoid doctors and hospitals um at risk of pretty much death <laughs> like my my husband who worked at a hospital said you know what you really need to do if you get sick or if something happens is avoid going to the hospital i don't ever get like super super like kind of wacko conspiracy but and metaphor, I it seems like a simulated world. Half of these times, I mean, I looked at it from the lockdown when people were in lockdown for a long time and they had to go out and to the world again when we opened back up and there was like no social like I, like thoughts anymore. Like everyone's just like walking without their brain on, walking out to the middle of the street without looking both ways, which was kind of normal before. But this was just like a little bit ridiculous if you have a kid in your hand and everything like that that I would see. And I'm like, we don't know how to have conversations. Everybody had to learn to say hi. And, you know, I haven't been out in forever and not, you know, batter everybody with your life. But then when I'm sitting with my primary and I'm talking to him, he was like, you know, Rob, you know, you shouldn't give Peter McCullough a platform. And this was last year when I had him on for the first time. And I'm like, why? 
I'm like, you should be talking to everybody you possibly can and trying to understand a person's perspective. There's things I agree with and things that I don't. And I'm like pretty logical in my statements. And he kind of goes, because misinformation, man. I was like, what is that word though? Like, can you explain it to me or you just hear it? Like I've understood it from academics who study it and what the difference between disinformation is, but what are you, where are you getting your information from? I mean, like that guy's talked to me for an hour. I only see you for 10 minutes and that's once every like six or seven months. So I feel like he knows me more than you do. And he kind of just looks at me and goes, well, look, I care about you. And, you know, you haven't gotten any shots yet. And I'm like, then why are you pushing that? Like, that's the main thing. Like, what happens if I just want to take some vitamin D supplements or something? I don't take any Tylenol or anything. So it's really hard to get me to even take that. But I, like, then he goes, well, polio vaccine worked. And I'm like, dude, I mean, are you like compared to something that has no relatively stance in anything of what we're doing with today? And he just kind of just, yeah, nothing. So... So when people talk about the COVID vaccine in the context of other vaccines, first of all, it's not a vaccine. Like you said, they changed the definition of vaccine. Second of all, do not talk to me about the COVID vaccine in any way in relation to any other vaccine. I mean, I understand people who have vaccine hesitancy about childhood vaccines. That's an entirely, completely different subject. That is a subject that we can talk about and that we can address and that we can disagree on. But I don't care what you think about childhood vaccines, about measles, about mumps, about all of those vaccines. That has zero, zero connection to the COVID products. Because the COVID products are a different platform. They're a different technology. They have a different effect. They weren't studied for decades. They don't have a safety profile. They don't have an efficacy. They have nothing. You cannot compare that in any way. And doctors who say that, by the way, Rob, I wouldn't go to that doctor anymore. I haven't seen I him in a while. <laughs> I hate to say it, but like he's pushing something on you. You're a 25 year old male. It is now well established, even within mainstream medicine, that young men have a higher risk of myocarditis from the COVID vaccines than they have a potential benefit. It is it is it is established science now. So if any doctor is pushing a vaccine on a 25-year-old male, personally, I would call it malpractice because he is supposed to cause first cause no harm. Especially since I work in the fitness industry and I work out every day and I haven't eaten fast food in like 10 years. I feel like my body's pretty healthy. I rarely get sick. Why do we have to keep you know, suggesting all these things? But when we talk about the comparisons to other vaccines, when they start doing that is when that's going to start tearing down that wall as much as it tore down the wall of ivermectin, where people can't even talk about it without calling it a horse pace. And eventually people are going to be like, well, all vaccines are bad. And I do believe vaccines work. I just don't. I have a lot of questions on this one. And the fact that I'm not getting answers when I address it and I'm getting more eye rolls or I'm getting more people shouting at me with like a ravenous rabies like look where i'm like what is this i've never seen it before i've been jogging on a path and a guy who's on the opposite side of the path equal like eight different car lengths away would be screaming at me, put your fucking mask on don't you know you're killing people i'm like we're outside i don't have to have a mask outside we don't have to do this but then it would just became the thing where he sends up pulling out his phone and like trying to act like I'm video recording this person. I've seen it. I've experienced it. It's difficult. And it just goes, I, I don't know what to do here because I want to help. 
And really, I just want to talk to you because I feel like at any other moment, we would sit down and have a beer and just relax and talk about our opinions and perspectives. But you're so charged up, like I'm hurting someone to, that is close to you or something like that. And it should not be this way. And I've seen it, and I think it's social media is a big influencer in that. Um, I think Elon buying Twitter really helps out, but I think there's a lot of device. It's two short character bites where you can easily get lumped into your echo chamber, and then you can't experience any new perspectives or any other thing that doesn't go outside the opinion of your own. Let me um, let me disabuse you of your naivete. <laughs> so, as a non-conspiracy theorist, I will tell you that all of that fear was the result of a planned propaganda campaign. The reason that I yelled at you on the path and the reason that you and I have seen that zombie look in so many people's eyes and faces when we try to talk to them and I uh, is that, and the reason that you and I agree on so many things, even though I'm sure we come from different political backgrounds and stuff. I believe um, deep state, a hundred percent, hundred percent. That just keeps me out of the left and right stuff. I, I like, I don't vote. I know people go like, oh, you don't vote, dude. Why are you even speaking on this? I'm like, I've just seen too much of history of like the church committee and all this stuff to really want to throw my hat in the ring and say that there's nothing more than we're stuck in a giant capitalist institution. Good point. Very good point, which I agree with. Um, but I think the reason that we're seeing that zombie look is because the most successful part of the biodefense plan in which they manufacture these viruses, and then when one escapes, they manufacture the uh, medical countermeasures. The most successful part of that whole plan, which was the COVID response, was the propaganda. The propaganda succeeded above and beyond, I think, what anybody could have imagined. And what the propaganda was, was they wanted everybody to be petrified. And if you have a giant international propaganda machine, and I know this, I'm going to say 99% for a fact, um, a giant international propaganda machine, which is fueled by the um, intersection of government, intelligence communities, and big media, okay, and online media, um, all fusing together. They were already fused before COVID, but they became more, they became, you know, completely fused over the COVID message. And if the message that you're trying to get out is that everybody should be terrified and everybody, everybody in every bubble is being bombarded, whether you're in the Fox bubble or in the MSNBC bubble or in any other kind of bubble, even the libertarians completely capitulated, everybody capitulated. It was mass formation. I don't know if you've heard of that term. Mass formation um, psychosis. Yeah, um, which, which is, Basically, the propaganda works. It works. We know it worked. We know it worked in communist countries. We know it worked in Nazi Germany and Nazi countries. You know, we know we know propaganda on a massive scale in a population that can't get access to any other information works, and it worked. So that fear that you saw in that or that that craziness, that crazy look, that and I see it. You're right. I mean, even now I see it when I talk to people about these things um, or when I try to have rational conversations with people and they get that crazy look and they just don't want to talk about it because it's they have this cognitive dissonance. So logically, they, what I'm saying, they can't contradict what you or I are saying to them. They can't contradict it logically or factually, but 
they have internalized the fear and the propaganda to such an extent it becomes part of their identity and part of their group identity to such an extent that if they um, reject it, it's like the reject. It's like too, too painful. It's like rejecting their own identity and rejecting their own belonging to a particular group. And they don't. They can't do it. It's like it's too painful and it's too hard. And so that's that's what gives us that like zombie look. It's like okay, well, on the one hand, there's the facts and there's reality, and on the other hand, there's my identity, the group that I care about, the group that I belong to. I don't want to give that up. I'm just going to ignore the facts and the reality. And again, when you ask about hope, I don't know what I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not hopeful. Um, I'm a I'm a bit of a pessimist, and people always tell me you're too young to be a pessimist. I'm like, look, I've seen the same events throughout history where people can produce change, and it's just stopped, and it's just it's just repeated. And I, I'm not saying. Of, I know you don't vote, but what do you think about RFK Jr.? I don't think the deep state's going to let that happen. I know when I say that, and be, I, the first thing is going to happen is, I, look, I'm big into the JFK assassination. I've spoke to 100 experts, including Blakey from the House Select Committee on Assassinations, who the first time in 60 years on my show said that Lee Harvey Oswald was more than just a lone nut. So I've been over 64,000 things of government documents. I've talked about MKUltra. I've talked about a lot of things. I actually said what Tucker Carlson said about Jack Ruby before he did, months before, because I have the documentation to pull it up. There is MK Ultra and the Kennedy assassination. Um, a researcher uh, had got this out, but it's a document. Luis Joyon West is the guy's name. If you look it up on the internet, you can do your own research on this one too. It's, I mean, it's, I think it's well knowledge now with MK Ultra, but Sidney Gottlieb, one of the heads of MK Ultra, was one of the people on a document that I have with 13 other people listed to try and kill Castro. Um, they were using his efforts. One researcher um, or one document that kind of came out was Luis Joyon West, who was in charge of Operation Midnight Climax, if you've ever heard of that. It was about drugging people at these Haight-Ashbury clinics in San Francisco. They were dressing up as hippies, and they were putting LSD in people's waters and bringing them to these things and having them go mad on LSD. Well, The Intercept, if you respect that website at all, um, they have published well on Luis Joyon West. Um Luis John West had visited Jack Ruby. Uh, so I have a document that's five psychiatrists visit Jack Ruby, the guy who shot Oswald. One out of the five administered him a flu shot, and that was the MK Ultra doctor, Luis Joyon West. Now he starts going crazy after that flu shot, bashing his head up against a cell door, um, having horrible visions of people being burned alive and all this type of stuff. Now he said they gave him cancer. Now, look, there's no evidence to show anything in that no documentation on what was in the shot. I can't prove they gave him LSD. I can't prove they gave him cancer. But what I can show you is a year before they had been injecting prisoners at an Ohio penitentiary with cancer cell injections. So that is real. And that is, well, that is in our history, but people believe it because prisoners, I'm like, look, it can happen to anybody if the government wants to do it, but they were experimenting on LSD at this time, but they gave Jack Ruby 246 x-rays in a matter of two weeks. And I have the Parkland medical receipt of his x-rays where they scanned him over and over and over and over again. So I've been saying this for a long time, like this is the MKUltra stuff. Now, Jack Ruby died of pulmonary carcinoma with a second death that was, a, or a second part that was attributed was he had a cancer in his lung. So when he states in his famous testimony, I, they gave me cancer, I don't have much long left to live. I can't validate that, but I can show you all this stuff that makes a really weird coincidence that how this all ended up this way. And that's what Tucker Carlson had said about... um. 
on Fox News that now it's now everyone knows about it. But I've been saying it for months before because I've actually been through the documents. I have his psychiatric records. I have his Parkland medical receipt. And that was about the MK Ultra aspect with Jack Ruby. And that's like looking through this stuff. I learned about the church committee. I don't know if you've ever heard about them before, but when you start learning about the CIA on college campuses, I've had people talk, who've written books about it, all this type of stuff. I'm like, I don't need to go and be prove conspiracy and all this type of stuff. But RFK is so close to the JFK stuff where I know he's going to attack the agencies. All I want from them is just define your terms. You have national security that's an open door policy, so you label everything a national security issue, where after 60 years now, you're now saying that they never had to give us the documentation on the JFK assassination. I have members of the Assassination Records Review Board who were on my show who are federal judges who go, my personal opinion, and that's always when they get conspiracy, but they go, my personal opinion – I'm looking at the photos of Kennedy's brain in the archives, and I literally said, there's no way this is Kennedy's brain. The reason they have photos of it is because his brain went missing in 63 or 64, and nobody knows where it's at. So there's a lot of things where I start going, as much as I, I – once I start laying it out, people go, that just sounds too crazy to believe. And hopefully, I mean, I'm making a film about it to kind of put it all together. Um I united everybody on the conspiracy front. So I think the top film has 24 researchers. I have a hundred something because it's much like uh, the anti-vax and vaccinated topic. The JFK assassination is just like that. Some of the biggest controversial events, the reason why people question things, the reason why the term conspiracy gets brought out is because it's, there's something going on. Now, what is that conspiracy? Like I try and say, like, it's not a conspiracy that like, you know, this happened or this happened. The conspiracy was, did they do it on purpose? And did they keep doubling down on it? And that's when you can start to go, like when you really start pointing the finger at somebody. And I think, you know, if you tackle it from a logical conclusion, sorry, I just ranted about that, but it's one of those things close to. I just want to point one thing out because everything you're saying is interesting and I would like to see the movie a lot. And I believe you that um, there's too much stuff going on for it to be what, you know, they were telling the public. I believe that. Um, injecting people with cancer, um, cancer cells are your own cells that go crazy. So I've never heard of anybody being able to be injected with cancer. So be careful when you say stuff that's medical or scientific. And I'm only saying that because I think you have a lot of good points and valid points and don't like um, make yourself less credible by saying things that might be not scientific. That's all I'm saying. Mm. Uh, so. So I had a guy on my show called Alan Hornblum who wrote for the New York Post, but he did a documentary you can find on YouTube is pretty good. And his book is pretty good called Acres of Skin. Basically, the pharmaceutical companies at an Ohio penitentiary were also experimenting on prisoners by putting perfume on their skin, cutting off like back pieces of their skin. There's a the, the cover's really crazy. It's a guy with a bunch of bandages on his back. I mean, they use toothpaste, experimental toothpaste. Dude brushed his teeth. And by I think it was after four months after he brushed his teeth, all his teeth fell out. Um, so they're talking about this type of stuff. He wrote about the cancer cell injection thing that actually did happen at an Ohio penitentiary. His documentary mentions it. Um, I can send you that documentation through an email as well, too, of the article that he sent me about it. Um, it was just an, a, a thing I was going to throw in my film as an aside thing. But I, like I said, I don't think you need to get everybody there with that. You can just kind of show them the best talking points, which is Oswald allegedly took a shot at Kennedy, then 30 minutes later kills a cop and then goes to a theater. If that's not the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my entire life, 
and they knew where he was. And two people were arrested in that theater that day, two, two guys that looked exactly the same. So there's a lot of evidence to support that someone was using his name, which I go into my film and talk about a lot too. Like I said, it's it's a lot of like conspiracy stuff. Why did it need to be him? Well, the government was up to a bunch of stuff. Why did he go to a theater? Well, if you know anything about intelligence operations, that's where spies meet. It sounds crazy, but he had half a ticket stub in his pocket. It's, you're supposed to sit beside somebody and they hold up the other half of the ticket stub and it makes a full ticket stub. Now, I learned all this separate from the JFK stuff. This is like learning more about the Cold War. Someone be like, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but this is similar to that. Yes. And then I'm like, okay, so that makes a little bit of sense. So a bunch of people that are not even JFK related won't even entertain the discussion that would just cut you off if you started talking about it. Would start mentioning certain things where I would through all my conversations start piecing a bunch where I was like, I got to learn more about the Cold War. And then I ended up learning a lot about like bioweapons as well, too, and kind of that whole thing. And Dr. Delirium, if you've ever seen that documentary. Um, but there's a lot of like interesting stuff. MK Ultra working with LSD, Timothy Leary, and then going through it. I'm like, you know, there's like little notes of it. So it's not like it's not super conspiracy. It's just kind of like showing the public that like the CIA created a heart attack gun. You can watch that on YouTube, you know, just. Define your national security terms is all. I don't know what you guys mean by that, and it scares me. Yeah, yeah. I think that's so interesting. Um, so, yeah, even if they did inject the cancer cells, they never could show that injecting the cancer cells actually induced cancer. I'm going to stop talking about that. Just, just take that off the table. But um, what's really interesting to me is that you got really interested in this conspiracy theory because you saw how the thing, one thing led to another and nothing made sense, right? And for me, like the Kennedy assassination is interesting as a kind of mystery. And I'm really interested in your work on it. For me, the reason that I got interested in the COVID conspiracy, which I didn't even know was a conspiracy at the beginning, is because it affected my life and it affected the lives of everybody I know. So I think it's funny that for me, it took like something that destroyed my entire world to get me interested in these so-called conspiracy theories but they've been around for a long time. It's just, they didn't impact my life as much, you know, so I wasn't really that interested, but now that I've kind of opened up that can of worms, <laughs> you can't really close it. Cause once you start seeing it, you can't unsee it. This one, uh, the one that we're in right now is just a little one that's, we're still waiting for a lot of documentation. Hopefully that we're going to be getting on to be able to answer some questions on some things as well, too. Um, the Kennedy one still has needs documentation, but you know, it's a little bit more, a lot of people have put more groundwork in it than I have, and I'm kind of coming at more like a good time for it. Uh, first, probably of my generation that's really trying to focus on a topic that's old. It's hard to get people to care about something that happened last week, which is like with the importance of understanding what we're in right now and why it is so important to get answers on it. And I appreciate the work that you do and others have done as well, too. But is there a place where people can find it? Give your links. I don't know if you have social media. I couldn't find you on Twitter. I do not do social media. I think it is destroying the world. So... <laughs> so I only go on social media to do research. I don't post, I don't respond. I don't do any of that. You can find my stuff on Brownstone Institute. So um, brownstoneinstitute.org uh, or uh, just look and look for Debbie Lerman. I think you can do brownstone slash Debbie Lerman or something like that. I don't have the exact URL, but just go to Brownstone Institute and look for Debbie Lerman. All my articles are there. The reason I only publish on Brownstone is that I don't want to get into the whole um, comment and response thing, which is just like social media. 
I, people respond to my articles by emailing me if they care enough. So if they're not just somebody who just wants to shoot off some kind of, some kind of dumb response um, off the top of their head, if it's somebody who really cares and is thoughtful, they will find my email, they will write me an email, and it will be something that's actually meaningful. And so I get meaningful and interesting responses. Of course, I don't get hundreds and hundreds of them, and I don't get likes or dislikes or anything, and I don't really care about that. Um, because I just want to have meaningful conversations. And I think it's really hard to have, I think this, what we're doing is really great and really important. I think it's really hard to have meaningful conversations on social media. It's difficult for people to come to the table clean is usually what I call it. There's always someone that's got something in there. Sometimes I'm in an intellectual chess match. I don't know I'm in until like halfway in where I'm like, wait a minute, hang on a second. Um, I wish it wasn't like that, but it, I, I see that a lot on social media as well. So I usually just post and ghost, but I respect that you're not on it. It's a, it's a dangerous thing. You know, you can use it, I think, to be beneficial at times, but I think, yeah, you're right about people sending you an email if they actually care and want to know the information. Um, and I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. I was just going to say some people even send snail mail. So I highly recommend that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, look, I'm going to link all your links in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Bound Blank Podcast.